We are the sacred collective. All are respected. All are heard. All are welcomed. Join us. Welcome to uh, this episode of the Sacred Collective. Today we have a special guest, uh, Comrade Mark Abraham Van Steenwick, who is here with us from the Center of Prophetic Imagination in Minneapolis. Uh, and we're going to do a roll call. So I'm Joshua. I'm Caleb. I'm Eric. I'm Angela. Amanda. Keelan. Brian. And Mark. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. Woo-hoo. So, uh... Can you tell us a little bit about CPI the, and uh, the work that you're trying to do there? Yeah, the C- CPI is the Center for Prophetic Imagination. So basically, uh, it's addressing this problem that I've, I've seen and has been bugging me for a long time. Uh, that radical politics and any sort of deep spirituality are usually not found in the same places. So there's a lot of... A lot of spirituality that's becoming commoditized. It's just kind of part of the capitalist machine. And people in radical politics usually think of spirituality as a distraction. But that prophetic tradition um, is radical, and it's also spiritually deep. And so we wanted to kind of create a space to kind of stir up uh, people with a prophetic vocation. Because if you go to seminary, you're trained for continuity, for being a pastor, for maintaining. They don't really pay you in churches to disrupt shit, and so people, there, it can be lonely work. Um, there's little support for it, and so we wanted to create a space for that, just to help people spiritually piss people off. And all those <laughs> Very eloquent. Eloquently <clears throat> said. So that's that's my gig. It is a yeah, pretty good gig. Yeah, lots of rich people giving us money. For that. <laughs> oh, <okay>. yeah. <laughs> you, you keep having on that meme pop up where the rich will never let us vote away their money. Yeah, that's one of the things that we do is kind of like our our advertising is we create just a ton of memes that are continually being released on Facebook. Uh, it's interesting because a lot of these voices that we kind of feature, um, some of them, it's it's fascinating. People love Oscar Romero now, but he was gunned down in his own country. There's this way in which we can acknowledge prophetic voices after they're gone, but not really in the moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. MLK... For sure. Yeah. He's got a statue now. Yeah. But at the time, I mean, the government was washing him. Probably killed him. Yeah. 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 Good good times. Um, We also, so in evangelical movement, probably around, what, 2008, 2009, lots of Christians kind of put their pinky in the pool to see what um, Shane Claiborne was about. And he kind of called his movement like a, a kind of a form of radical Christianity, which didn't really seem radical to me, and I don't think it does to you either, but it kind of just seemed like a normal extrapolation of trying to do what evangelicals mostly say. It was like, what would Jesus do? Yeah. Um, it's not that complicated. Um, anybody else familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The ir- Irresistible Revolution. That he wrote uh, Jesus for President. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Chris Hall. Mm-hmm. Did that affect any of you have any cross-sections? Yeah, there was this time, because, so before... I mean, technically, I still live in an intentional community, but before starting CPI, that was the, the thing I put a lot of energy into, uh, kind of a Catholic worker-style intentional community. Lots of guests trying to do the Jesus-y stuff. But a lot of people had read, read that book, and they came to us with the most sincere but often misguided expectations. And usually the folks that came that way burnt out quick and went away. Um, so there was 
some of that. So I feel like Shane Claiborne is kind of a gateway drug for radicalism. Uh, what he was talking about is your, your standard Anabaptist kind of way of thinking about things. Um, and where, when you get into that mode of like you're evangelical but want to be really, really like Jesus, then you get really heroic about stuff. And like, I'm going to start having homeless people live with me, but then you end up abandoning the homeless people in the middle of their need. So there's a lot of that kind of it's misguided heroic stuff without wide, having eyes wide open, yeah. And no political analysis to speak of. So then when you get confronted with all the problems of the world, you're like, some issues can't just be individually loved away. Did that? I remember reading that book, uh, Irresistible. Ro- Actually, I was already interested in doing intentional communities when someone was like, "Hey, have you read this book?" And I was like, "No, let me it's check it out." It's got duct tape on. Uh, it's yeah. got fake duct tape. Fake on duct tape. Yeah. Which you know, that's all right. Um, remember reading it and almost viewing it as like a how-to guide to do intentional community, which was a mistake because it it had a lot of helpful suggestions, but no. Um, what happens when Eric and Angela get in a huge fight or what happens when Amanda and Brian Which break up which is on a daily know? basis yeah. Eric and I can't oh, yeah. stand each other I can tell <laughs> <laughs> but all those little real real nice. things and somebody wrote I think it's is it Creating a Life Together is that it the, the book about potential communities yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, that's the thing he, the, he shares these heroic stories to inspire people. So I kind of think of him as a Billy Graham type figure. He's evangelizing people with positive stories about another way of doing Christianity that can be helpful, but it has a limit. Um, so we get people because they'd want that, but then my whole thing is I feel like I'm dark Shane Claiborne because I would want to tell people horrible stories, which to be fair is like in the Jesus tradition because like when people started following him, he'd be like, ah, I eat my flesh, you know, and just say kind of random crazy shit just to scare them away, just to make sure they're really serious about this thing. So we get people, and I try to wake them up to painful reality and existential dread <laughs> so that they could, like, if they stuck around, then, okay, I'm going to fuck you up so that you can't function in the empire anymore, or if you go away, you'll probably just go back to your suburban <laughs> life, and that's okay. Yeah. I mean, so who, <laughs> so who here could define radical theology in, like, the term like Barry Taylor, who you've had on the podcast mm-hmm. before, could you define that? It's an awful, it's an awful tall order uh, to define tall, it. But, but it's, it's I mean, so it's, nuanced, though. With it's cool. nuanced. It's it's a lot of it comes out of you know the Death of God movement. I mean, you know, in the sixties, Altizer was probably the biggest proponent for her. He he was doing it for probably about eight years before he started getting flack from. Mm-hmm. Where was he from? Georgia, like you know, somewhere real far down south and, and started getting a lot of flack because he was a, a professor of theology but I mean I don't know it's uh, it's de maybe de-defining God so you can redefine that term if you choose to still engage with that term sort of a demystifying demystifying of, yeah mythologizing yeah yeah taking away the mythology and because like Boltman would be a radical theologian too like mm-hmm. Rudolf Boltman and Altizer literally said the, his view on the Trinity, which I, you know, he actually said this, but later clarified that it was much more metaphorical than how he kind of felt like he had to teach it back, you know, in the sixties and stuff like that. But he said that God the Father, uh, how did he word it? Uh, he became the Son. He he uh, not downgraded himself, but he, you know, he 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 
chose to step down as the father to become the son and then chose to die as the son and then to become the Holy Spirit, which is which is just the essence of love that humanity can engage in. And so God being dead is actually a beautiful thing because it then kind of it kind of opens us up to being the body within those, you know, Christianese terms. And and so yeah, it's really just it's it's kind of a vague I think Christian atheism and radical theology have a lot of crossover. Yeah. And here I um, <clears throat> this is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. That's uh, such a great source. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Theology, which was fundamentally skeptical about modern's man ability to speak meaningfully about God. Is, is radical theology then kind of, is it a rejection of metaphysics? Or is that part of, because I feel like some people I know who are into radical theology will also be critical of metaphysics as a huh. category. Is that, I don't know. Hmm. I'm, not a, I'm not a trained yeah. theologian. Yeah, whatever. I'm a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a hedge theologian. I'm a hedge theologian. Yeah. Emptied himself was the term I was looking for. God emptied himself to die, and so the death of God is actually. Yeah. I had that experience re- re- after late night White Castle once. I think we all have that experience. That's that's my Eucharist. So, I'm barely exaggerating. So, like, you introduced me to books like Radical Christian Writings, which is a collection of radical sources, and so. If you were to say radical theology, how would you define it? Because I think that'd be something interesting that's very different from like the Death of God movement or the... Yeah, if, if, if I have a quibble with them, it's, it's not that I'm not on that page. I feel like there's a lot of overlap between the Death of God folks and those in the, the apophatic mystical tradition that say you can't say anything about God. You can only say what God is not. So there's like this overlap. And you get someone like Simone Weil, who my house is named after, is this... This someone who is like a precursor to the radical theologians, but then also an actual political radical, a mystic and a radical, um, and she died young. That's the whole story behind that. But to me, like, I can find a lot that I'm excited about in radical theology, except for the use of the word radical, because to me, I cherish that as a particularly uh, political term. Mm. And you can be a political radical if you're in radical theology, but I know plenty of folks who are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it gets, gets kind of weird, and it, it, to me it contributes to this bifurcation of spirituality and politics that still plagues us, to start using words like radical to talk about uh, your doctrine of God. Do you think there's innately an overlap between the political and the spiritual, or, or is that something that you're trying to, to build I think there it, there is one that's innate, and when you don't recognize it, you perpetuate a sort of continued alienation. That so we, mm. we're kind of cloven okay. people that don't really. So you see this a lot. One of my the people I like getting the most upset with is Richard Rohr, who I've met. He's a nice guy, and he's got some politically progressive views, but he's kind of big deal. And like people who might Christians who are interested in reading Deepak Chopra might also read Richard Rohr. Right? <laughs> so he's a contemplative guru figure. And he directs this thing called the Center for Action and Contemplation. Mm-hmm. And the joke is, among people who even work there, is they should just change the name to the Center for Contemplation. Because you, we don't assume that having certain beliefs or uh, spiritual postures will automatically filter out into radical politics. Any more than when, you were an, when I was an evangelical and I heard, like, pray and read the Bible as part of your sanctification, and then you'll automatically be a better person and have less anxiety. That doesn't work. <laughs> Maybe it would have oh, before we kind of clove the world in half. Do you want? Do you want to maintain a, or, or maybe reach towards 
a separation of church and state, but then build a merger of spirituality and politics? Because those almost sound like parallel terms. Church and state and, and spirituality and politics, you know? Yeah, I mean, this is where it gets complicated because, like, I would be okay with not having church or state and also having radical spirituality that flows into radical politics. Mm-hmm. But I'm an anarchist in both areas. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is where I like the radical spiritual uh, theology because there's something anarchic about yes. it. But you can get into that stuff without and still, like, be really excited voting for, you know... Pete Buttigieg or something like and just vote centrist and not see a kind of a, a conflict right um, so to me radical theology getting back to that to me it really starts with you have to start with the liberation theologians and go from there with this radical insistence that if God is anywhere um, God is in the experience of the oppressed and that's not just a pious claim it's an epistemological one that anything any, if we're going to be human and spiritual and and connect with God, it means being in real solidarity with those who are experiencing oppression, and then, and then fighting against oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can you give a list of some liberation theologians, just for people who might be listening, who don't know who, if they're interested in like liberation theology? Oh, yeah. like, I mean, I'll name four that are my favorite favorites: James Cone, who died a couple years ago. Uh, kind of considered the father of black liberation theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's provocatively said, you know, Jesus is a black man, um, and his uh, cross and the lynching tree is kind of one of the more recent books he wrote. It's, it's badass. Uh, Ernesto Cardinal is my favorite liberationist because he was like this priest in Nicaragua who started a, an artist peasant community. The revolution came, and he kind of joined the revolution, almost got kicked out of the Catholic Church, um, broke off his friendship with Thomas Merton to be all radical, and then ended up feeling disappointed because the, the Sandinistas became oppressive. So he, but he wrote theology from inside. Um, Dorothy Sola was the German feminist liberation theologian um, who also wrote a lot about mysticism, so she's my favorite for that. Um, yeah, those are good starting points. It's tasty sauce. Mm-hmm. Tasty just tasty sauce. Yeah. So, so that was a lot. Yeah. In a good way. Um, that was for free, by the way. We're not charging. Who? Yeah. Who else? Like, charging. so, what questions do people have about those sorts of things? Like, those are. I mean, politics and spirituality in America are mostly supposed to be separate. Well, in the way that they are together in our society are, are really, really shitty usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna go back a little bit in the conversation. Something I was that kind of struck me that I was thinking about in just in terms of kind of my like spiritual history Mm -hmm. um and I think it has a well so someone mentioned something about like what would Jesus do what would Jesus do I'm like I'm sure half the people at this table had like one of those WWJD bracelets Mm -hmm. and like I had the, the ones that said frog Fully relying on God, yeah. Like all this, all this, like Christian. And then there was like all the T-shirts that were like the parody logos of like whatever. Yeah, a breadcrumb and a fish. Yeah. Um, but I think like it was so commoditized. 
Oh, I remember yeah, that I one. That. I remember that one. It was bright orange. Yeah. It's a it Jesus piece. It, it was. Hershey was a virgin? No. No, I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That, that was good. <laughs> But I think, like, especially, like, the WWJD thing. Yeah. In my, like, preteen years, when that was, like, kind of got big, and even through, like, last week, through high school, well, I had a friend who, like, wore that through college, that bracelet. But it was so much, it seemed like, to me, looking back, it seemed so much like, what would Jesus do? It wasn't really asking that question. It was more asking, um... How do you be like a good conservative evangelical Republican, not making trouble, like thing? Like how did, like how did? Because if you look at like what would Jesus do, like literally going to Wells Fargo and knock over tables? Yeah, yeah it was not it. The, like yeah. the overlap with what Jesus would actually do. If there was a Venn diagram, and like in one circle, and the other circle of like what we were taught as like conservative evangelicals, of like what wearing that bracelet meant, like had very little overlap. It was basically don't sin. Yeah. Was like what it was like defined by that. Yeah, right. <clears throat> right. But like, what does that mean? Like, it wasn't. It was, and this I think is more just kind of like um, descriptive of I think evangelicalism in general. It's like you get instilled with these like. What should you not do? And they don't focus on like what should you do. Mm-hmm. Even though the WWJD is like asking what should you do, it was still like implicating that there's things that you shouldn't do, and that's what you should focus on. So yeah, because that movement of WWJD came up around the same time as like promise rings, yes, yeah. and the purity culture, and the which is like so toxic. Yeah. So like, how did we? Was it around like the Left Behind books too? Yeah. yeah, all that. Oh, yeah, that came yeah. Out. Piercing the dark. Do you remember the slogan "Don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls, girls to you"? Yeah. yeah, but how, I mean, this could be like a whole podcast series. Like, how did we get to where we are that was so much focus on like the should nots and not focusing on like the shoulds? Yeah, because like so Jesus, easier. like Jesus was not about don't do this, don't. He wasn't about lists of don'ts. He was about lists of do. Like, mm-hmm. love God, love your neighbor, like do good, like. Everything was about what you should do. And American Christianity feels so much about what you should not do. Well, I mean, the, pres- the, the prescription for what it means to be a good American is already covered. So, like, it, we don't... America doesn't want us to do Jesus-y stuff. So, like, once you have, like, an imperial kind of movement within Christianity, you start having to shift to a, from a gospel of liberation to a gospel of sin management... And then it becomes all about getting rid of the things that keep you from being a good, upstanding citizen. So is that, do you think that's like a good, maybe sort of like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like like a point that like crystallizes sort of like this idea of like radical theology and like radical politics and like how there's like, they aren't connected, but they should be. Is that like something that, is that maybe like a good starting, like an entry point to kind of understand the work you're doing? I think it could be. Um, to me, it gets even more, I get more interested, like to me there's, so I'm going to go back to these two spiritual terms, the apophatic and then the cataphatic tradition. So cataphatic spirituality nerd, is uh, is basically doing positive things. So like that's, so St. Francis is a great example. 
of a cataphatic spirituality. Can do works of compassion, Dorothy Day, the works of mercy, all these things that you can do. Um, the apophatic thing, it doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't make sense, like because uh, to think of it as a good thing, because it's you just the ap- the apophatic folks are the mystics who sat in in silence and talked about God's presence as a luminous darkness, <laughs> and they had like dark night of the soul and it's existential. But there was like a a purging away of all these outside ideas about who God is and uh, what God does. And to me, that piece is absolutely essential because I don't think we know how to do Jesus-y stuff just by reading it and putting it into action because we have so much of the the toxic imperial shit Mm -hmm. in our imagination. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like this kind of this one-two punch of the apophatic move and then it allows you to then look at people and instead of just trying to do what Jesus did, uh, moving into the place of like, if the spirit of Jesus is animating my actions, what should I do? So it really puts you more at the center than Jesus in a really important way. But even saying that, any evangelicals listening are probably like fleeing, <laughs> fleeing like gremlins with water on them or whatever. Yeah, it's hard when you just told facts and you're like, that's hard. I don't want to do any of that. I mean, this is the whole thing Jesus, like, <laughs> we don't like talking about the, the stuff that Jesus actually said is like, uh, in John's gospel, he's like, hey, um, sit around, I'm going to pour my spirit out of you, uh, and greater things will you do when the comforter comes. Or don't worry, uh, the comforter will guide you into all truth. So it's really the spirit-centered way of living, which Jesus is assuming, like, I don't want you just to do what I'm telling you to do. That's the starting point. The end point is you going and being just like me, but doing more. And that that's not what you tell people if you want them to be compliant. (laughs) So this is why people get really anxious. Like, it's clearly, if you're reading the Gospels, the idea that we're all supposed to sit around and try to figure out what a book says. Um, I used to think about, like, would Lieutenant Commander Data be the best Christian? Because he could, like, put it all into his positronic network and know exactly what the Bible's supposed to say because he's smarter than the rest of us and he could do exactly Jesus' things. No, that's not the goal because Jesus didn't ever talk about it like that. But that's what, basically we have these evangelicals and other fundamentalist sorts of people trying to be like Lieutenant Commander Data, being like robotic interpreters of Scripture in the most precise way possible and then doing what it says. And Jesus would be rolling over in his grave if, if he saw us. Just kidding, that's anti-resurrection. What's that? Rolling over at the right hand of that God. Resurrection mm-hmm. humor. Uh, that resurrection humor. That'd be a great name for a band. Resurrection humor. Nice. Hot take. Hot take. Um, I'm not denying the resurrection of Christ. I mean, this, this is making My cats just did. Of course. I'm going to cats are the enemies of Satan. Yep. He's Russian. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that just took a dark Yeah, I don't know. I feel like when uh, when people are confronted with uh, what what the gospel leads one to do or to, to become or to to change about the society they live in, most people just become in, uninterested because it it seems so daunting and it also seems it seems foreign, it seems scary, and it seems like well, who else has done this? And you look back at the examples, well, you're like shot, shot, dead, starved to death, um, stoned, um, crucified. <laughs> Exile. There's some exiles, exiles in there. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be bad. Mm-hmm. Hanging on the Isle of Patmos. <laughs> That'd be okay. 
Writing weird stuff. Writing Revelation. Doing mushrooms and yeah. then islands. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> writing, writing the book of Revelation and then evangelical <clears throat> Christians thousands of years later said, this is how the end of the world's going to happen. The helicopters are the locusts. Right. That's <laughs> classic. <laughs> that was a great connection. Yeah. That's okay, here's another... Mm-hmm. I've got another idea, If anyone else, unless anyone else has a question. I, I have a quick... Can I interject a yeah. quick one? Um, I read both of Shane Claiborne's books and with what I was wrestling with at the time and I know you've addressed this too the total absence of a stance on the queer community um, which seemed really not trustworthy to me (laughs) both like like all of kind of like the buzzy radical people at the time like they would be like we'll be radical about anything but that (laughs) And that was something I was, like, going with with my brother being gay. And Mm -hmm. so it's something I was specifically looking for. And it's something that was so glaringly absent Mm -hmm. in radical theology where they're like, well, you know, I'll talk about this and I'll talk about this, but I will not touch queer people with a 10-foot pole. Because, like, it was, it's so... Polarizing. Well, especially in their communities that are usually very conservative, if they want to do something different that they see as radical, they have to make other concessions. Cause it's but, big. like, why would they die on the cross of being radical for so many other groups, but they wouldn't do it for queer people? That's my question. I want answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I know, I know Center, your center has done, like, amazing things for queer community. Yeah, like our, the co-founder, Zed Jensen, is a trans person, and so we started it together. And since we don't pay well, they had to move on and get, like, work that paid. So that's part of the struggle. But, I mean, Shane hasn't really evolved much on that issue, mm-hmm. which is disappointing. And he's been recently getting flack again for it. Mm-hmm. You know, tons of people came through the simple way. Some of them were queer folk, and I... The stories I've heard only tangentially, because I don't know anybody directly who is queer and was part of that community, was that there was a lot of hurt. And I think there's a reason why that that isn't touched, is because at the end of the day, if you're doing something that's purely aspirational, like, uh, hey, we're going to live in a house, be hospitable to homeless folks, and talk about how we need to have peace and not war, that's not really... That's inspiring, but it's not really that provocative. I remember when that book came out, and I was sitting with a group of Baptist ministers, and they were uh, talking about how their church youth group was going to do a study on the Irresistible Revolution. And so I'm like sitting there, I'm like, you know, if you're interested in that, like, it's, my community does all that stuff, and we can talk. So I started talking, and I realized they're only interested in reading about it to inspire their youth to dream big for Jesus kind of thing. Mm, yeah, not to really do it. So as long as you're on your own doing these things, even if you talk against war, people aren't that upset about it. Right. When you start, like, other things Shane's done have been more upsetting, uh, but, like, if you really want to make sure that you have entree into the evangelical community, you just don't talk about LGBTQ folks. You don't do it because that, like, challenges the way that they understand Scripture. You also don't do things like be overtly critical of capitalism. 
and you can be into uh, reconciliation when it comes to race stuff, but you don't want to like go full on Black Lives Matter about it. So there's these kind of thresholds. Just with the LGBTQ question, um, that threshold is very, very low because if you give it a little bit on that and say, well, maybe, uh, maybe people are born this way as part of the image of God, then all of a sudden they're like, well, you can't be evangelical anymore because you're not believing in the Bible as an inerrant word of God. Mm. And then fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> if that's how you read your Bible, you're better just throwing your Bible in the fire and never opening it again. Yeah. I was having a conversation with a supervisor today, and they were saying how they didn't appreciate certain curse words, like ever being said. Can you say which ones? They didn't, he didn't like the word bitch um, or fuck. And I was like, you realize that they don't even bleep out bitch on TV anymore? And he was like, well, that's terrible. And I was like... What, did they have a problem with shitcock? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't ask. Classic shitcock. But, and I was like, and after 9 o'clock on cable, you can say fuck, and they don't blurp it out. And he's like, well, I think that's bad. And I go, lots of things are bad, like capitalism. And he, he went... Fuck. <laughs> well, I... In sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. I think that was a surprising thing for the say. Time. I was like, is that... Is this? So we hired somebody to be a logistics coordinator for our food show. And they asked, like, well, he seems to be doing a great job. I've heard nothing but good things. But we've heard some things about him using some language. And I'm like, <laughs> if this is the worst thing you have to talk to me about, then shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> there, then there are no problems. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like... Seriously. Uh, Hang on back to what you were saying, Angela. Um, I feel like with me, I've I've gotten in, and this kind of instigated or this was a, a factor in instigating my deconstruction, getting to to the point that it is now. Was like even when I still subscribe to ideas like you know like sins being listable and quantifiable and having. Uh, you know, ethereal consequences, eternal consequences, and things like that. Some one of the first things that started my deconstruction was like, if this is not hurting myself or anyone else. And at the time, also I was I was politically a libertarian. Ooh, sorry guys, but we all have to start somewhere. In our yeah, day. I know. But I was, you know, I was like, if it doesn't hurt the person doing it or anybody else around them, okay, you shouldn't murder. Yeah. That makes, you know, that's a pretty fucked up thing to do. You shouldn't steal from somebody else. Yeah, that's a pretty fucked up thing to do. You shouldn't love someone who happens to be this gender when you're this gender. It's like, what What are we talking about? You shouldn't wear this type of cloth. You know, you shouldn't touch the skin of a dead pig. Like, maybe there's some, some illnesses there. Yeah, you shouldn't get tattoos. Like, maybe, maybe in this antiquated list of do's and don'ts, it's like, yeah, you could catch some disease from... Touching animal. Maybe even you can maybe you can even make the argument of like, you know, STDs and things like that. But as far as like, you know, committed love goes, I mean, promiscuity. I guess you can make an argument against. Um, but even then, it's still just like, who are are you hurting? Where does this logically, mathematically break down? Like, or is this just because it was written? by someone in, in a book that I inherited you know and so it's just like things like that it's just it's, it's just so hard to it's just so hard to critically say even if you do use the vocabulary of, of a word like sin or, or you know things like that it's just so hard to justify 
something like like the the, the queer issue, which is like, can we fucking can we just get over this, please? But what I never understood with people adopting this radical thing, they always talked about radical love and doing life together mm-hmm. and like yeah, it's a how phrase. how being this radical lover <laughs> of only mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who think like like <laughs> I radically I, love 5% of people yeah and talking about like doing life together and like I was in a church that was like that and one of my really good friends was an out gay man and when they would talk about all this togetherness and all this radical love and stuff like that, and then I would be the only one who talked to him after church, I was like, how is this not a giant slap in the face yeah. to my friend? Right. Like, talking about yeah. and even calling attention radical to inclusivity mm-hmm. of, like, I just want to be this bright, shining, like, I'm not going to cover my candlelight. I'm going to let it shine for everybody. But, Hide under a bushel? But no. 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 But the problem is, his but candle is a different gay, color. Gay people uh, shouldn't see it. Right. <laughs> I cover think, it back up. Uh-huh. Like, and I'm like, why specifically? Yeah. Is it, it just seems so, I mean, maybe just because I have a lot of queer friends, I saw it mm-hmm. more radically than other people, but I was like, mm-hmm. it seems specifically to me that they were... Yeah. This like hard line was drawn right. at like we're I, gonna radically love everyone, but not the queer. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it was like almost like loving with the intention of assimilating to become yeah. like us. We right. love people like to we're gonna love you yeah. to become like us, mm-hmm. and you aren't like us, and you don't want to be like us, and that is scary, and we don't agree, and we think you are living in sin, and you can't continue to do that, and so. That's it's like we can't change you. It's like it's like loving to change people. Like we want to, but a homeless person isn't like maybe they don't want to be homeless. We need to love them because it's not their choice, and they like oh, we, to, yeah. but we can like we can show compassion to them. But a gay person is like they're choosing to live a sinful lifestyle that we have to change. And if they don't want to change, then we can't love them. Yeah. And that's like that's from my experience, kind of like the yeah, didn't want. Well, to. And I, if yeah. I can just jump, but I think it's. The way evangelicals understand radical is a totally different way of like what you're saying and like what we're yeah. even describing. So yeah. it's just it's a just it means, means really really. <laughs> it's really, really, I'm a very, really really Christian. Yeah, well, it's just like a, it's like if, <laughs> I, if, I, very, if very I said much. like if I said I'm a radical Christian or I, I like radical theology, my family would you know if I would explain it like what we kind of described here, which is another whole thing where it's a different nuance. They they would say, oh yeah, I'm like that, but yet they're very exclusivistic. It's all that, so it's it's hard to when you when we talk about radical theology, even saying it to let's say fundamentalist Christians, evangelical Christians, who they'll they'll use that buzzword because there's always buzzwords within our faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll so what you're saying is I agree 100 percent, Angela, but I think they're not even understanding and comprehending the word radical the way we're even describing it. So it's like, it's almost like talking to a wall because unless they deconstruct or have some sort of epiphany, they're not even going to understand. Like, they're trapped in their own ignorance in a way because they don't even understand what the word radical is the way... It's like different dictionaries. Yeah, exactly. I think 
part of the thing that gets really complicated with all this is the motivations underneath. So, like, well, let's talk about how we relate to, to queer folks. So, like, I was one of those people who didn't have... I probably leaned a little bit libertarian, mm-hmm. like, instinctively. Like, mm-hmm. why would I care that much? Except for the Bible says something. Mm-hmm. And I want to be faithful, so I'm going to do what the Bible says. The moment I was able to understand, like, how complex and much... The Bible is like... There's not like there are these hard and fast absolute truths that you can easily clearly define Mm -hmm. and then some of it is contextual it's just all contextual it's all a slippery slope and as soon as I started realizing hey I know some I know this lesbian couple who's more loving than I am and if I am honest about it I'd rather support them and so if I look at scripture and realize that it's not as rigid as I'd like it gives me freedom Mm mm-hmm to accept them and to learn from their example of love that their marriage is better than mine, mm-hmm. right? So I have a lot of sympathy for people who are like anti-whatever because they want to be faithful to Scripture because I know that eventually their desire will win out because the spirit is strong. But then there's all those other fuckers like, that we don't want to acknowledge. Like, most people, I'm convinced of this, aren't anti-abortion because they're worried about babies being aborted. It's they're anti-women having sex. There's like this whole like resentment about sexual expression. Why should? Sure, I'd love to go out and have, be able to have all sorts of sex and enjoy my life, but I can't. Neither should you. Like so, there's that sort of resentment. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. hatred of women. Uh, misogyny. Uh, there's the ew factor. Disgusting on a judge. There's all the people that think that our society needs to be like some sort of order of creation, culture wars thing where. Uh, men and women have their place, the children have their place, white people at the top of a pyramid of color, all these sorts of like assumptions about what a just society is, and then they reach into scripture to somehow restrict people, like, we can't have too many gays, it'll destroy the family, like, all these sorts of logic, and those are all different motives, but it all goes into the Bible, like, the Bible says, and I'm like, mm-hmm. that's bullshit, right. because I was a Bible says person, I changed my mind because mm-hmm. I had too much love yeah, to right. stick with it, mm-hmm. but... Yeah. If I would have been more grossed out, like maybe I would have been like still be hating gay people, mm-hmm. or maybe if I resented people for having more fun than me, <laughs> you know, all this, all this stuff. Having like, more sex well, than me. Okay, I think this might go back. Go going back to what you were saying before about how like we have so like we get. I don't know if this is like a good term, but like culturally indoctrinated by America. And yeah. that, in ex- like, unavoidably colors how we view scripture. Um, this is something I was also thinking, and I've thought about this a lot over the last, I don't know, decade or so. But, like, so many American conservative Christians view America as a Christian country, like a Christian nation, like God's country, you know, like God bless them, like all of this, like. Just total overlap of patriotism with Christianity. Yeah. Um, it's not true. It's not true. And like, if you say, if you like, how would you compare current America, like, our, like, how would you compare us living where we do when we do with first century Jews living in the Roman Empire? Do you think? the U.S. is more similar or dissimilar to the Roman Empire. Because that is going to, like... Super deep, man. Like, so many Christians don't want, like, are like, America's great, America's good, God bless America, like, America has all these Christian values. 
is it more like Rome than we want to admit? Totally. Like, uh, the person to read on this comparison point is Richard Horsley. So he, I don't know if he's a biblical scholar or primarily a religion scholar, but he's written a lot about scripture, uh, imperialism, and the way in which, if you want to look at, so the the imperial, uh, the Caesar cult in Rome, most people didn't believe the Caesar was God, was a god. Actual god. No, they didn't. But it was there's a societal function to it, mm-hmm. and they had to play their part, and they enjoyed it, and they had their you know, centered around a big festival and all this stuff. And so he makes the case in one of his articles. I can't remember what it's titled, but he says, you know, that's an awful lot of like like the Christmas season in America. Mm-hmm. Most people don't. They're not trying. They're not honoring baby Jesus. They're doing this stuff, and we. But the way we. This is where. It, it's spiritual in the same way, not because they're both mythic constructs, but because both function to establish what we think of as the good life in America. So the Roman cult was about keeping order and making sure that everyone was, like, everything's good and it keeps the economy rolling. And that's why we do Christmas, is it, it's, it's when we go into the black. It's about capitalism and about the good life in our society. So these things function... Like, even if the we don't believe in a pantheon of gods, and maybe the spiritual stuff doesn't line up the same way, the structures of our societies are very similar. Uh, the idea of justified war, like Pax Americana, like, we're doing this for their good. Pax Romana was seen as an altruistic thing. We're bringing civilization to the pagans. We don't like using that terminology more. We talk about bringing democracy. Mm-hmm. But it's the same fucking thing. And we're all indoctrinated into it. Yep. Uh, when I was writing my dissertation that I never finished, <clears throat> I had to read this. I didn't have to. I chose to read this book, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them by Robert Louis Wilkin. And it talks about how the Romans saw the Christians as incredibly unpatriotic, mm-hmm. um, as atheistic, yeah. um, as troublemakers. Orgiatic, like having sex with their siblings, right? Isn't that one of the things? Yeah. I mean, it's a, this is a really dry <laughs> book. It's a really dry read, so I wouldn't recommend a ton of people go out. And, and it's a hard to find, too. Yeah, here's a, here's a chapter title. Chapter 6. Porphyry, the most learned critic of all. <laughs> Tell me more. Nice. But yeah, Galen, the curiosity of a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, can, you can read that. Ear. For the listener, Josh is passing a book around. We're not all just recalling these these chapter titles. <laughs> well, except Mark. Yeah. <laughs> I've already memorized that text. But I would say it would be... I mean, the American Empire is in decline at the moment, but, I mean, after the Second World War, we were the only superpower left. Everything else is destroyed. There's no war in our soil. It wasn't American exceptionalism that made the American dream. It was that all, all of our competitors were destroyed. And so we helped them rebuild, and they owed us. I mean, here's a question. So, like, keeping it current, I'm going to ask, going to turn the tables. So, uh, climate crisis rising uh, fascism or neo-fascism, depending on how you want to see it. Uh, economic collapse, always like uh, on the horizon. What should Christianity have to do with any of those things? Like, we know what it is. Like, it basically, Christianity as an institution in America, even the more progressive mainline ones, like, just to, to serve up a, a slice of shit pie... I mean, you have, like, Thriving Financial, which is a, the big Lutheran investment company, has money. It's making money from caged children right now because of investments, uh, war manufacturing. Uh, or you have most, most grants that mainline denomination folks get come from the Lilly Foundation, which is primarily funded through overcharging people for pharmaceuticals. 
Like these, we're all tied into it. Yeah. We have people that are polite about it and want to have be civil, and then there's the ones who are just overtly dicks. We call them evangelicals, but we're all tied into the system, right? So this is what current Christianity in America generally looks like. I mean, what what would the alternative look like besides a bunch of kind of neo hippies starting an intentional community together and being kind to a few homeless folks? Like, is that the best we can imagine? I want to know what what you'd want to see. Imagine. This is why the word imagination is in our well. I would like to see like uh, very wealthy people be held accountable um, to pay their fair share. Amen. Getting accountable or just like redistributing their wealth accountable? Well, it's like the affluenza case. Um, (laughs) Getting. What's the? That's that's where that. That kid was able to get off for a crime. Is that um, so? Case? This very wealthy oh, kid was diagnosed with affluenza by his defense team. He um, killed four people uh, after stealing his family car and stealing mm-hmm. liquor from a liquor store. He was incredibly drunk, and uh, he killed even a youth pastor and um, a mother and daughter. Like, so he killed four people, and he hurt other people. And they got him off with just being able to go treatment and going to probation. And they said he suffered from affluenza because his parents were so wealthy, they had never given him boundaries. And because he never had boundaries, he didn't understand the consequences of his actions. So he is therefore not responsible for the consequences of those actions. Well, that'll help him understand the consequences. It's just to yeah. remove them all together, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. No, he had to go to counseling. Oh. <laughs> and then he, he obviously and uh, di- didn't take his, his... The counseling, or the consequence of murder is counseling. Yeah. So that's the lesson he learned. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the, in, in America, if you're rich, you're not accountable for anything. Right. We have that new guy. We'll see what happens with him. I'm not, yeah, I'm skeptical that he'll get... But he might become a... The only time is when there's a bunch of rich people and they need to have a scapegoat. Yeah. Then they'll, maybe we'll, they'll let us have one rich person have accountability, but maybe. but all the other ones won't be... Apparently he violated his parole over 50 times. Like he's, he's already, he's already registered sex offender. Epstein. Um, he's oh, that guy. Okay. I, I haven't really... He's already, he's already a registered sex offender since 2008 um, or 2006. But he violated that, the terms and conditions of his parole for that, over 50 times. I think it was 64 times, or 74 times. Um, and no consequences. But this guy in jail already. And he's really good friends with Bill Clinton. If that was Trump, anyone who was poor. He was poor, he would have been in, the, in, in jail a long time ago. If he was African American, he would have been in jail, and it would have been for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. If he was any other color, any other. He has the largest penthouse in New York City in Manhattan. With seventy-seven million dollars, that's where they're suggesting he spend his time, his prison time. Gosh, what a hardship! Um, okay, here's a here's a uh, potentially oh, controversial that's like some thing. Kingpin shit. Spending your time in your penthouse is Kingpin's cool though. Is, yeah, are these yeah, issues? <laughs> uh, should these issues, like these big issues, be the concern of individual Christians? These big issues, yeah. Or what do you mean by concern? Or should we be more concerned with? Like the guy who lives down the street who needs help, or like the people who are going to the food bank down the road, or like like what's going on right now, like us talking about things that then can like seep into other aspects of our daily life. Because it doesn't seem like Jesus and like the early Jesus movement was like let's let's like get Caesar off the throne. It was like let's just like well to maybe reclaim this phrase like let's do life together like let's just live like we're gonna have a house and we're gonna have like 
we're going to share things and like so but it's yeah. so hard when we live in America when we do where we do when we do like how like because we want like I want to do something that's going to affect like positively affect you know, climate change or I want to do something that's going to like have an impact on like changing how like the justice system works but it's like am I doing that as a Christian or am I separating that from spirituality am I doing that as like an American and can we like do you have to separate those things or can you do those things together I think one thing that we've been taking away from Christianity is the political nature of it which Mark's been talking about because when you say Jesus is Lord you're saying Caesar isn't so you're making an inherently political statement right away so it seems like that was the concern of individual Christians in the early church of saying you're not you're not there is no Caesar anymore we we don't have to deal with your government like you're not in charge of us anymore this is the thing like but he was still in power they weren't like actually trying to like get him out of power they were just saying yeah they weren't I'm not assassinations and stuff right but but there was like I mean it's hard to say like they were starting where they were at there was a small tiny movement Mm -hmm. and that's where we it's so complicated because like even if we try to do uh a term no one uses anymore, church uh, discipline, right? The idea of, like, kicking someone out of a denomination for not holding standards. Like, we use that for people being gay or whatever all the time. But, like, you don't do that for Donald Trump, even though he's Presbyterian, right? So that's where it's hard. Like, so every president has theoretically been a Christian, right? So it's like, what does it mean to be collectively Christian? Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost meaningless and negative at this point. Yeah. It's a toxic thing. And so for me, like, if we set aside what does it mean to act in a way that upholds the the best insights of Jesus and those who follow Jesus in the best way, then I do think we need to be concerned about individual things. But I also think part of the spiritual task, and this is going back to the apophatic tradition, like, okay, spirituality for me, among other things, is about taking time to be, for my practice, in the presence of God so I can allow all the false narratives that have been put in me to start being pulled away mm. so that I can tear down shit inside by the grace of God with other people and then together we can tear down the shit outside mm-hmm. and to me that's a spiritual practice yeah. and so like yeah we have to do it has to be anchored in real persons and relationships and attention to people but also climate change is a systemic problem and needs a systemic response and we don't need to be like make sure everyone like get entire denominations to be like the, the, the locus of change for that but as people, like, collectively together, anyone who's not buying into this bullshit, we can tear it down. And to me, that's a Christian thing to do without necessarily having to put a Christian stamp on it. Because to me, it's, it's still incredibly spiritual. Mm-hmm. But I think our whole categories of spirituality, what our religion teaches, what Christianity is, is so bogged down and it's become so toxic at this point. Like, I totally understand people who throw it all away. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to be a Taoist now or whatever. I'm a glutton for punishment. I like being confessional. I think I claim being white because, like, I need to de- uh, deconstruct whiteness. And then in that same way, I claim Christianity. I need We need to tear it down. Mm-hmm. But I also actually love Jesus and think Jesus is spiritually present. So it creates mm-hmm. complex situations. And the one thing I've kind of not been kicking around, but, like, what we've been saying is I do feel like there, uh, we're predominantly kind of kicking at evangelicals, fundamentalists, whatever. They're easy. Yeah, and I think most of us at this table, minus you, Kayleen, grew up in some sort of capacity. Not you, Josh, but 
you converted to evangelicalism. There's the shitty version of Catholicism. I don't know. I've never um, but like, <laughs> I think because like I think everything that was being said, like, like on, on, and I've said to people, one of the reasons I left evangelicalism was on the queer issue on gay rights, knowing having a great uncle that I found out who was gay and it was hush hush, finding out you know there wasn't queer people allowed in my church. But now in the tradition that I'm in now, the United Church of Christ is, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn. Like this is the greatest group of people. I love it. This is part of one of my communities, and they're great people. And I'm going into ministry for them. But I do think there are certain denominations in our country and other parts of the world that are trying to be as best of Christ followers, quote unquote, whatever that could be. Could we do a lot better? Probably. But, and I also agree with Mark, is like, if people have to just throw all that away, don't believe in anything, or convert to another religion or whatever, that's fine too. But I'm like you, Mark, too, where it's like, I I like confession, I like, there's just something about Jesus I tell people that I can't I can't give Jesus up. The, the story... I don't know how to quit you. I don't know how to quit you, Jesus. <laughs> I can't quit you. But no, but and that's, and that's number, for me. And... and <laughs> And I like to be, and in my tradition in the UCC, it's I feel like I went to our conference, Caleb and I went to the conference, and Amanda, where our general minister and president of the whole denomination spoke. And what he had said for, like, our, like, we're trying to give back reparations back to not just black folks, but natives. Um, We're trying to, we're dealing with immigration, trying to make Minnesota, not just because Minneapolis-St. Paul already said that they're sanctuary cities, but to make the whole state to vote for politicians who are in favor of that. So I do think that there's groups of Christians, denominations who are like, hey, enough of this shit. Let's not tear it all down, but let's let, let's do whatever we can. So I just wanted that caveat. No, I agree, Brian. I think some churches are doing a good job trying. I just feel like, I personally feel like it's great, Mark, what you're doing, big picture-wise. It's great what we're trying to do here yeah. on an intimate level. I also think that this shit's just all going to blow up and start over again. I think we can make good, right moves here and there. We can try to reform things. We can try to, to clog up all these leaks in this vessel that we're all stuck on, but I just think it's going to blow up. We're yeah. talking about Rome earlier. I mean, I don't know. I just think it's all fucked. Yeah, I mean, you mean, you're talking about America. Well, yeah, just yeah. This we're is talking like about civilization. Yeah, like America and religion, you know, Christianity, and it's just like yeah, we I mean, let's try to change. I'm, I'm involved in yeah. trying to change it. I'm very involved. Yeah, and and um, trying to reclaim certain terms. You know, Christianity. We we call this a small group. You know, I'm really involved in Revolution Church. You, you call that a church. Call that a collective. Whatever you want. Uh, I do a lot, a lot of podcasts about these things, and I'm very passionate about it. At the same time, I'm not super optimistic about it either. I, I, yeah. Like when you know, ten years ago, when I was you know, teenager, early twenties, stuff like that, it was like, yeah, like, let's change the world. And I totally admire that. And I really, maybe I'm just, maybe I just need like a little vacation or something. But I, feel, <laughs> I just, just go like, on a vacation. I just feel like it's just kind of fucked. I, I think when you do the kind of work that Mark's doing, uh, there's part of you that can't help but be cynical. And like trying to shield yourself from that in different ways is like, is almost an art in itself. Yeah, the, the thing, so, so just for a little backstory. So 
I did the kind of the full-on Catholic worker-style community, Mennonite worker is what our community is called, for 15 years, and I burnt out. And one of the first times I burnt out, um, that's when I started our Iconocast podcast. And so the goal of that was to interview, like, old radical Christian folks to see why they didn't burn out and go away. So I talked to all sorts of people. And I remember interviewing, one of my favorite interviews was with Mary Jo Letty. So... She was a nun who left her order to start, like, hospitality houses. She also has a Ph.D. studying Hannah Arendt, which is, like, a political philosopher. So she's just a badass. <laughs> and she's a radical. And I asked her, like, what does she do? And she's like, well, every day I do everything I can to, like, uh, to seek liberation and justice. And at the end of the day, I say that was enough. And I remember being so pissed off by that because I was still caught up in this idea of, like, we need the big win. But I, the more I've thought about that over the years, I'm like, that's the only way to live. Like, you do what you can every day. Yeah. You're strategic and wise. You don't expect anything to happen because you can't expect that. You don't have right. that kind of power. But then you say, I've done enough and I'm going to rest. It's like uh, we interviewed one person who was like who had spoken with uh, Daniel Berrigan, who was mm. this revolutionary priest guy, great guy. Mm. Uh, bef- like In the years before he died, if you asked him, like, are you disappointed because all the stuff you fought for and struggled for it didn't happen and he's like well at the end of the day all you have is the bread and the cup man that's a good Catholic answer but I, I think there's a wisdom in that yeah like I don't have optimism at all but I don't think I'm a nihilist either because I'm like I have to live as though there is a hope right um and that's enough that's it that's mm-hmm. all I got mm-hmm. I do think I tell people all the time like I'm 99% fatalistic like I think the structures define us more than we get to dis- define the structures. In the, uh, the powers, the institutions are not the sum total of individual choices. They have a life of their own. We're corralled towards destruction like lemmings. Uh, 99% we should ex- expect to die and that this whole world will go up in a, a greenhouse of flames. And then maybe, <laughs> hopefully, the reptilian uh, people will rise in uh-huh. a couple million years from the ashes. But the reason I'm still a Christian is because I think there's still the 1%. Like that sometimes there's free choices that can change things. Mm-hmm. And that to me, speaking Christianly about it, that's where the Holy Spirit dwells. When we can, you see in the scriptures, anytime somebody does something that subverts things, it says they're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit exists to subvert the shit out of the existing order. Mm-hmm. And I have a little bit of hope that that 1% happens. I just don't know when it is because mm-hmm. I'm not saintly enough. But I'm just going to bank for that 1% because otherwise... What's the point? Yeah, I, might as well go, I might as well go like off myself. Like that's really right. pure nihilism in a dark way, or kind of a ninety-nine percent nihilistic with one percent of hope. Yeah, that's nice. keeps me going. Keeps me going. Like that. That's it. Like that. oh, and also, Valentine's Day keeps me going. Yeah. Right. What's well, Five hundred years from now, someone will have a good life. Maybe. Have you, has anyone here <laughs> read a Canticle for Leibowitz? Uh huh. Yeah, the Canticle for Leibowitz is a great example of yep. what I talking about. Yep. That's another recommendation. It's about this post-apocalyptic society, post-nuclear fallout. They start like this religious community that tries to collect old shit from our civilization, named after a, a long-dead uh, engineer named Leibowitz. They found his name tag or some shit. And so this religious order exists to collect information, but then that information gets used to recreate civilization and the nuclear bomb, and they end up doing it all over again. But then at the end of the book, spoiler, there's a mutant born who has Christ powers. <laughs> so it's like, maybe there's a chance. That's mm-hmm. kind of the, the moral of the book. It's like, we can kind go of in the circle over and over again, but maybe things will get better mm-hmm. one of these days. That's nice. It's a great book. Did you like it? 
Yeah. <laughs> when did you read it? I read it a while ago. Yeah, you need to reread it then. Okay. I don't trust you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it would make a great like HBO miniseries or like Chernobyl stars. Yeah, kind of like Chernobyl meets Game of Thrones. Yeah, but with it's more, not with I more mean, depression. Yeah, it's not a like uh, feel good book. No. I think that's what he's going for. No. As a yeah. human race. It's kind of like Handmade Tale, kind of a little shitty, yeah. but with months. Yeah. This just got heavy. In, in a good way. I'm saying mm-hmm. it's is good. It, yeah. Is it in a good way? Does anyone have anything else to say? Well, the 1% <laughs> hope. I gotta go on that. 1% yeah, that's, hope. That's really all we, the most we get, I think. Well, I think the, the only thing I'm gonna say to piggyback off of that, there's many times I've even thought like of wanting to be in ministry where... I'm a super, I process a lot of my, well, I'm an extrovert, so I process it outside, but then, you know, I'll be at home and Amanda will be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just kind of off in, in my thinking mind. And there's a lot of times where I just am like, do I want to be in ministry? What is ministry about? What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. So I do think a lot of us who have been in ministry, and I, I mean, when I interviewed for my dissertation, I interviewed two emerging pastors and then to UCC and the general consensus is even with them was we don't know what this is all about we don't know how it's going to end we don't know if there is a God or not but there's something about like kind of like what you're saying this 1% of hope of I can't give it up we don't understand it we don't know however there's something about it that I just can't give up and that 1% is kind of like I'm going to try the best to do what I can do not just for myself but for the community and the world around me and at the end of the day, if that's all that I can do, then that's a good thing. And, 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 that, and that's how I have to look at it, too. Is like, if I can do something that not just helps my own spirituality, but the people around me, not even necessarily faith-wise, but just being a good person and helping people, then at the end of the day, that's all that I have, you know. There's nothing to be mad at about that. Yeah, and I think that's... Um I think that's hard in our society because, like, yeah, I think we have to accept that it's not, this is beyond me. Mm-hmm. It's not really about me, except for I believe in uh, human flourishing, uh, restoration of the land, and living in some sort of sense of mutuality. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm going to put my, invest my energy towards that, but, like, not have any illusions that I'm somehow a hero who can achieve it. Right. And that's really hard because we, we've, We've grown up hearing that you can make a difference. You can do, like you don't know if you can make a difference. You really don't, mm-hmm. and you don't know like mm-hmm. if you could be successful. What does successful mean? Any definition of successful in our society is pretty shit. Like it's not. <laughs> that's terrible. And so it, you almost have to kind of be kind of like, well, I can only then do it for. This is cheesy sounding, but for the love of the people around me, sure. no, and as kind of a workman, <clears throat> like just kind of doing the labor. And finding joy in its own sake, knowing that I'm I'm moving things in the right direction, and then leaving it to God. Like this is where that kind of that language of the early church, where it just seems like, well, they didn't have any sense of power. Christianity is is a slave religion. It's the weapons of the weak. We don't. We're not. Once it became a weapon of the powerful, it became it got off its rockers. But all they had was a sense of like, we hope that God will vindicate us, and we are going to be in the struggle. And I think that's the only way, that way of living is the only way Christianity makes any sense. That's good. That's, this reminds me of a quote I used to use in a speech I used to give when I was a senior in high school. I used to give the, this little speech at Christian camps called The Meaning of Life. <laughs> and uh, this was one of the Sweet. quotes I used. And it's the, 
The true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. Who's Nelson Henderson? I don't know. That Nelson sounds Anderson. like a Minnesotan name almost it, there. Well, it might. But I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, yeah. Nelson Henderson is coming over for like Lutefisk. Nothing's going to happen right now, but... I went fishing with Nelson the other day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Caught a big bass. Make some pickled perch. Yeah. Lake. My boat. <laughs> wow, that was fun. To all, the people, to all the people listening who already don't know our accent, of course everyone doesn't know our accent. They've anyway. seen Fargo. They know. <laughs> Should we do recommendations? <laughs> sure. Is that a good, was yeah. that a good stopping point? Say so. Uh, childhood quotes from Josh Bell. That's a good <laughs> point. We start? Um, I would recommend the first SARS. Or the last SARS. The first SARS. The last SARS. I like the first SARS. I haven't finished it yet, but I started it, and I it's, finished it. it's, it's interesting. Um, it, it's, it felt like the History Channel uh, not, not rated, NC-17, because they have experts talking, but then there's, like, weird, strange sex scenes. But I felt like I learned some things about There's a lot of Rasputin sex in there. Yeah, I, I learned some things about... Um, there's just lots of Rasputin sex, yeah. period. But, but, what's the, what is in history. The Russian Empire and the last SARS. The SARS. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so that's, Well, that's the title of the last hour. That was the context. Well, I, the end of Nicholas II's reign. Thank you. I need more context than just the name. There we go. You're yeah. not going to watch it. It's too violent. I know I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> I know that. I just want to know what we're talking about. All right. So I can, like, participate in the conversation. Yes, it's your turn, I just want to plug the fact that uh, sometimes when I eat my friend Ronnie's mom's meatloaf, I get really sneaky poopies. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not That's, recommending the meatloaf? Is that a non-recommendation? <laughs> it's just a fact. Thank you for that. Amanda, question. do you have a recommendation that can top that? Um, no. Does anything you eat give you bad poopies? What can you do? You take it's super. been too long since I'm, I'm full. I know you, you have. have it has been a while. Um, oh boy, recommendation. Um, my recommendation is to get out in a canoe on the water this summer. That's a good idea. Anywhere you live. Yeah. Even the ocean. Uh, A canoe or any type of, I would say, human-powered vessel. Because there's something about just like wakeboarding. This is that'd be tough. Paddle, paddle 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 board, paddle board. Oh, okay, I was like, human powered wakeboarding would be yeah. <laughs> a, sand, on, a sandboard. Yeah, I know. Sure, yeah. but just like being on the water with just your, nice. just you and like. That's nature. a spiritual practice. What? Bingo. My recommendation is a podcast I've been loving. Um, I've been listening to a lot at work called The Evolution of Horror. Mm. Um, it's a British podcast, and I've been listening to their series on folk horror nice. and the evolution of um, fairy tales and um, stories that have been passed down through generations and how that can become kind of into like a different weird twisted tale and how people have taken that practice and made it into some of the most iconic horror movies in history. Yeah, that one. Um, so I highly recommend listening to that series specifically. I know they did another series, I think, on ghosts and one on zombies, but um, folk horror, to me, is 
very specific and very interesting and has like a really awesome historical context. Nice. So I recommend that. <laughs> that just made me think of the Look Around You series where they're looking for ghosts or matches or oh, something. Yeah. Oh, they have one on Midsommar. It's I didn't see that. Okay, sorry. sorry. That's totally not... What's your recommendation? I, well, you guys are going to laugh at me, and that's totally fine. That's fine. That's why we're here for see, it. I know. I love you. Um, so when you've had a long day and you really would like to own a cat or some sort of animal, but your building doesn't allow you to, you watch cat videos on YouTube because that's... So this guy named Cat... Christ Pool, he's this amazing guy who does a lot of cat rescues and stuff like that. So it's really cool just to see how he's <laughs> using his his cat's colon marmalade to. <laughs> Would to you like, say coal or colon? No coal. <laughs> colon, <laughs> colon marmalade. That's a great that a first name. No, the cat also a great band name. It's colon marmalade. It's colon. I think oh, that's what happened to Caleb French. after the meatloaf. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I knew that would happen. Um, that'll be our first tip. No, it's called he's... Caleb after the meatloaf. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's going to be a death metal band. Oh, my gosh. We'll be a, a digit band. a black cat. That's where that came from. I love all of our recommendation and non-recommendation. Anyways. Have you been to the Kitty Cafe in Uptown? I have not, but I've heard about it. I've heard about it. I'm sure it'd be quite an adventure. She doesn't have an actual cat, so why'd she go to the kitty? No, you go there because there's a cat. It's because, like kitties yeah, there at the cafe. There's cats there, Josh. It sounds terrible. <laughs> really? <It> sounds great. <laughs> I prefer if it was dogs. Anyway, um, my two. I, I'm a huge um, Netflix, uh, Amazon, and Hulu junkie. Uh, if you have not watched Stranger Things season three, you. Are missing out. I'll just say that. I would say there's. I still season one is still my favorite, but season three is fantastic. Um, I'm not going to spoil anything, but if you love your '80s nostalgia, the music, um, all that, it's fantastic. And there's a never-ending story rendition song in there, mm. uh, and it's fantastic. What is it, Dustin and and his girlfriend, and his girlfriend Susie? Sing it, and it's it's cute, but it's also fun because then you start singing it yourself. Because I know my wife and I started singing. Um, the other thing is, I know I've recommended it before, but the new season of Handmaid's Tale is just freaking fantastic. It's brutal, it's tough, it's getting super super good, super dark. Um, highly recommended if you haven't gotten into the show. They're only I think it was season three, season three, yeah, season yeah. three, season three, and. They're all streaming every Wednesday on Hulu, so watch it. This last episode was fantastic, so watch it. So recommend anything? Yeah, two two things. Uh, First one is an anime series called Mushishi, which anybody who's never watched anime because they think it's dumb, watch Mushishi. It's the most zen, contemplative experience. It's amazing. (laughs) Like people that are like really like. Quietly interested in anime, love that anime. Just, is it new or old? School? It's, it's probably ten years ago. Okay. Is it? Is, it like is this? Is, is this traveling person? I don't know where you can watch it. I think it might be on. Some of it might be on Hulu. Mm. Um, but it's basically this guy walking around uh, in this world. There are people that are afflicted with these kind of spirits called mushi that are not. 
They don't have a will. It's like almost like a cross between a bacteria and a spirit. And so there's all these calamities that fall on them, and he basically solves their problems and moves along. Mm, cool. But then there's no soundtrack except for every once in a while there'll be like a boom. <laughs> oh, that's cool. It's just very okay. So that's that's the entree to really good anime, top shelf. Um, second, I want to recommend a film. If you're like we ended on a kind of a heavy note a little bit with. What do we do? We're facing annihilation, but we have to be faithful. The film that I've seen in the last few years that gets at all those themes in a heavy way is First Reformed. It's oh, by the guy who directed uh, Taxi Driver, but oh. it's got Ethan Hawke. Oh, I wanted to see that. Yeah. I had a lot of friends who saw it. They thought, this is the dumbest movie ever. It doesn't make sense. I but really enjoyed it. I thought it was amazing. Like, I think it, it should be. It it's a I, great film. I kind of wish, no, no spoilers, I wish you would have followed through with this plan. Stop it. Took up with Amanda Seyfried? No. In the record. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. We won't ruin it for anybody. Watch the movie. It is incredible. I have it on my it's, list. It's, it's a slow burn, but it's fantastic. It's heavy, it's brutal, and beautiful, and at the end, I felt like... You ever have, like, a... You're sick, and you vomited, and then you have a really good vomit, and then you're afterwards you feel relief? Mm-hmm. That's how I felt at the end of the movie. It's like, it heavy. Wow. ordeal, but at the same time, like, I feel hope. I feel like I'm alive yeah. again. Interesting. That's I got all this shit up. Yeah, right, yeah right. but now I'm ready to live for the first time with honesty. You're that meatloaf again. <laughs> All that meatloaf's out of me. Ready to go back for some seconds. Yeah. Stop. Nice. So I never to eat that meatloaf. meatloaf. Well, Everyone yeah. needs to it eat a mammoth meatloaf. Whatever happened to that how meatloaf affects your body, right? What I'm saying. Yeah, meatloaf. I would do anything. Any uh, recommendations, Ava? Wreck-It Ralph? Wreck-It Ralph breaks the internet. Uh, Baby Shark. Baby oh, shark. Baby shark. Do, 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 do. <laughs> um, seriously? On that note. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at sacred underscore MN. That was a post-Christian podcast. <laughs>